Hi guys and welcome back to the Female Fitness Podcast. I'm your host Danny, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Paul and we are going to talk about the importance of understanding exercise mechanics as a fitness professional but first of all Paul do you want to give us a bit of background on yourself and sort of when did you get into the fitness industry in the first place? Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me, first of all, now. Uh, so I got into the fitness space, God. So I'm 34 now, rather sadly. Um, and I've been in this space since I was 22, I think. So my story into it is probably a bit different than most people's really in that I went to drama school, uh, of all things, years and years ago, and then spent several years of my life as an actor. And initially, I'd gotten into fitness like many people do, because my teenage years were spent with being a bit overweight, having acne, and that combination of chunkiness and terrible skin made for not the greatest of uh, of, of sex lives. Let's call it that as my as teenage self me went. So I was like, oh, okay, well, if I can't do anything about my skin, seemingly, I can at least look like I eat less pies was the general gist. So kind of started doing that. And that became an important part of my life. And that was true through drama school and through acting stuff. And then you get this thing of being like, all right, well, what do I do around auditions? I don't want to work in a call center. I don't want to wait tables and stuff kind of anymore. What should I do? Um, and for me, I am denied between two things, PTing, thankfully the one I chose, uh, or being a, being a driving instructor. And to this day, I'm very grateful I did not pick the driving instructor one. That would have been terrible. Um, and so started doing that. I'm a big nerd at heart. So I, I, whenever I do anything, I want to know the why. Why does it work? Why does this happen? Um, and so... You know, I started kind of getting stuck in and one thing leads to another. This is back in 2011, 12, really. So lots of the stuff we take for granted in the fitness industry now wasn't there. My fitness power wasn't really a thing. No one tracked stuff. Um, you know, you used to write everything down in a logbook, much like a logbook, right? So like you take to the gym, you you do that for a for a diet plan type bits and pieces. The internet was early-ish in its fitness phase. So it was reading T Nation and Charles Poliquin was just kind of coming on the scene. And so initially you're following Arnie plans and, you know, that's better than winging it. Well, they're probably not really Arnie plans. That's face facts. It's just what I was in men fitness at the time saying it was an Arnie plan. So you do that it was better than what I was doing. So that kind of works, but you st I still didn't look like Arnie. It was weird. And so then, you know, I was like, what am I missing? And then oh, T Nation and Charles Poliquin have all these kind of ideas. So you go down that road a little bit and that was better than what I was doing before but I still wasn't getting what I was promised. And then I discovered sciencey stuff and everyone who likes to call themselves evidence-based and Helms and Aragon and Lyle McDonald and all those kind of people. And you do that a whole bunch. And that was better than what I was doing previously, but I was still then kind of missing some bits I, I felt. And then I, uh, I got into the exercise mechanics world. I don't know what, four years ago or something, maybe kind of like that through Michael Golden. Um, I don't know why I called him Golden. His name's Golden. He'll hate me if I hear me say Golden. Uh, at Integra in in the UK and the RTS world, the resistance training specialist world. And um, that really blew my world open and, and changed kind of a lot of things for me, really. And then that led to, I, I joined a company that used to be called the Muscle Mentors. Um, and then we kind of get to where I am now. I run a company called the PT Project, teaching exercise mechanics to people. And that's enough of my boring backstory because otherwise that's just off into the weeds. Yeah, cool. Another little bit of a side tangent, but out of interest, how did you? How long did you actually work on the gym floor for? And do you think it was sort of fundamental in your success throughout your career? So I worked on the gym floor till last month. Right. 
So, uh, yeah. Now, that doesn't mean I worked on the commercial gym floor for all that time. But, yeah, I spent six years working at a David Lloyd um, and then another year and a bit working at a gym box in, in central London. And, um, yeah, I mean, when it comes to hands-on coaching, you, you have to spend time with real human beings because the problem with online stuff from a mechanics perspective and from a genuine, what I would class as the exercise coaching side, because it depends what you mean by coaching, right? Like if we're talking about the relating to a human being, understanding their problems, coming up with specific strategies or just listening to them or whatever it needs to be, when we say the word coaching, we can apply it to different domains. So you can do all that stuff without having worked with person with, with people in person because a Zoom call can do much of that for you too. But from an exercise perspective, like if you don't spend time with real people, you're just rabbiting stuff back that you've probably read other people say online. So you know, if I use this magic cue, that's going to fix everything for all of my clients. So I'm going to say, screw your feet, or I'm going to tell this person to do this or whatever the, the thing is. And what you're going to find, and anyone who's spent any time with people in person will discover that those cues, however magic the internet promised you that they would be, won't work with a vast number of them. Like they don't get what you were told that they were going to get. And you'll not know that. And you won't also have ideas and solutions and and just this sort of bag of experience to to draw on of, oh, because like, here's one of my big pet peeves is that most research is done on 20-year-olds. It's like, look, I can set fire to a 20-year-old and ask him to a sprint into a wall and it'll be fine, right? Like in a six to 12-week study, what do you want to find in a 20-year-old? That has no relevance and no bearing to 46-year-old Jane, whose husband's just left her and she's got a dodgy knee and three kids. Like, that's they're, it, whatever's in that research isn't telling me shit about Jane and how to work with her and her specific problems. And so the getting hands-on, I think, is, is essential, is the long and short of what I'm saying there. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think it's so, like, it just teaches you so much about working with people and how diverse people can be. And I think that there are so many like coaches coming up into the industry that just want to get straight into like online coaching because they view it as something that is quite lucrative and is almost a little bit easy and allows them a certain lifestyle that they want. But actually it's not always what it seems, first of all, like it's basically just a desk job. And also they don't learn a lot of what they, they need to learn to be able to coach people properly. Yeah, I mean, I had this conversation actually with a client of mine this morning who, now here's one of the cool things about saying you're an online coach. This client, this client is in Sydney, Australia, right? So we were having a kind of catch up in bits and pieces, but they were talking um, about how that was also their experience, that actually they prefer being in person. They did the online thing for a, a few years, but it's actually harder in many senses. It's not easier. It's You're right, I think people have this idea that it's lucrative and that they'll be able to work from a beach on fucking Bali somewhere uh, and sip a cocktail and do a half an hour of messaging on their phone and then that'll be fine. But it's not, as you said, it's a desk job combined with a content creation job, right? Yeah. Like the skills that you have as a coach are not the same skills necessarily that you need to succeed online. You need those technical skills anyway. But on top of that, you're going to need to add a bunch of other stuff. Like Amy this morning was saying like, you know, if she loses a client online, it can be a while before you get another client online, depending on where you're at in your career and how frequently you get applications and all that stuff. And it can be, you know, the lead time on getting a client from them following you to buying something from you. If you're good online is, you know, three months, six months, 
Like, it, who the hell have you ever bought coaching from that you click the follow button and then immediately bought their stuff? Like, that just doesn't happen. But in, in person, I can and have had plenty of clients that I met five minutes ago, had a chat with. They were interested in having some PT and were thinking about it anyway. We got on well, gave them a quick demonstration of some stuff. They're like, oh, that's exactly what I'm after. And voila, they're giving me money shortly after that. And then they they stay for so much longer as well, generally speaking, not all of them, but they're, you know, generally, and this again depends on who you attract online. So there's different audiences online, but can be way less flaky. And so you know, a lot of the stress of being a young coach is crap, I have no money and I have no income and I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know how to build a business. And I don't feel confident in my technical skills. And you're like, you've got all this and jumping online, which is has less security than those other ones. It's just like, welcome to adding a load of stress to your life <laughs> that you might not need just yet and uh whereas in person it's way easier to succeed in person at least in the early years yeah i completely agree with that and so on to sort of the main subject of today's podcast what are we actually talking about when we refer to exercise mechanics because i kind of want to break this down and make it so that people understand what it's all about and aren't overwhelmed by it yeah well, I think that's one of the key bits that you touched on there is the word overwhelmed. And actually, I was curious for like, what do you think exercise mechanics means? Because I, I'm actually always really curious as to what people think on this one. Basically, like the way in basically like how we move when we're in the gym, essentially. Um I've done, so I, back in the day, did quite a lot of the Muscle Mentors practical mm -hmm. weekends. So that was my introduction to right, exercise right. mechanics. Yeah. Um, so I've gone into like quite, for quite a couple of, for a couple of years, I spent quite a while going into sort of like the details of it, going to the practical camps. James was there along with Callum and um, Luke was there as well. So yeah, that was my introduction to exercise mechanics. Um, and it was quite overwhelming. Like when we went to that first practical camp, I remember like the majority of people in the room were kind of like, oh my God, like <laughs> how do I make sense of this sort of thing? Yeah. And it took a while for it to sink in. Let's just yeah. say that. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, that's interesting. That's, that's actually really cool. I didn't know you'd actually been to the uh, muscle mile stuff before I, uh, before I joined there. Yeah. So, so basically to put it simply, I think exercise mechanics is, is basically like the way it's kind of like basically just how we move and how we apply force to the body kind of thing. You, that last sentence you just said is bang on. It's how we apply force to the body. Right. So I think of exercise mechanics as being two things, forces and anatomy. Right. The mechanics side is is a re reference to physics stuff like we call it classical mechanics, Newtonian mechanics. That's just a description of how like cars move and wheels roll and stuff slides down hills. And I push on this thing and it shoves on me and stuff that makes bridges stand up and the engineering principles. Mechanics is a really, really solid, undeniable foundation of every physical science right it's basic physics is really what we mean by that which is cool because actually one of the things that means is that is way more it's on way more solid ground than any research paper because newtonian mechanics works well enough that we still use it to build houses and bridges and send rockets to space a little bit and so that's pretty good right it's hard to argue with the foundations of, of the mechanics side of things and then so that's forces and then the anatomy stuff is well it's you and all the nuances that make you up and this is one of the bits with research that is a problem because, you know, 
I can show you pictures is the easiest way, which we can't do on a podcast, right? Of just the structural differences between different people's shoulder blades or differences in what the, the head of their femur does as it goes into their hip socket and, you know, the different proportions that people have. And yet, I think one of the biggest problems we have in the exercise world is that we impose this sort of artificial external standard of every exercise. Every exercise for every person has to look the same, even though you don't look the same, right? And it's like, well, hang on, why? And, you know, why does the bar have to touch the chest? Why does your ass have to touch this grass that is never defined on how high it is, right? Like it's, we don't have an appreciation for what happens internally for someone when we ask them to do things. If I've got six foot seven gangly Peter Crouch doing a bench press, he's going to be doing something quite different than if we have Eddie Hall with his giant jacked rib cage and his kind of slightly smaller arms relative to that. And yet both of them have to touch the bar to the chest, even though that bar doesn't go the same distance, even though the joint angles that your shoulder gets to aren't the same and the leverage that your muscles have aren't the same. And if you ask them what their experience is, it won't be the same. Like there's going to be plenty of people, if you've been coaching for any period of time, that you give them the bench press or the insert exercise that you should do here, that they complain that, ah, oh, it just hurts my shoulders or my knees. And yet other people are like, this is the best exercise to build your quad. This is the best exercise to do this. And then another client is like, oh, it just hurts everything but that muscle group. Like, how do we start to make sense of that? And I think then that the, the biggest issue that you touched on, and I think um, some of the muscle mental stuff was, was guilty of this, is overcomplicating it. Like... It, if we're bringing in new topics and subjects, how we teach it matters just as much as what we teach. So the information in the muscle mental stuff was was still was right, right? But the, I think the way it was often presented was was this exercise in maybe being a bit overwhelming and like a, what I'd call mental masturbation. Look what I know. <laughs> Aren't you impressed by my knowledge? Which is a really different thing than you leaving that day um, or that course or that whatever it is feeling kind of empowered that you can use this stuff and that you know how what to do with it. And I don't mean that, you know, there shouldn't be bits where you're like, oh, I need to know more here. Because that's cool, right? We're all cool with going, oh, I'm excited for this. And this is, but I think way too many people leave mechanics when it's poorly done, thinking there's loads, this is really complicated and I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, I think I, like I, um, I was coached by Callum for a while, love what Callum does and what he did and love the muscle mentors content and things like that. But I do agree in that I think it was, um, it was very full on very quickly. And I think a lot of people were maybe put off by that. And exercise mechanics could be simplified especially to begin with and then obviously people who really want to get into the nitty-gritty of it then they can do that um because this sort of like ties into the next question which I think you've covered a bit of like the importance of actually having an understanding of it as an exercise professional um you mentioned how you know certain exercises aren't right for certain individuals will be more likely to cause injury with some people that's obviously one of the reasons why it's important and one of the main reasons alongside that why else should fitness professionals have an understanding of exercise mechanics well i think if we start with the idea that it's forces applied to anatomy and you think about well, what does that really mean well it kind of means everything because you know i'm sitting on a chair right now there's a force shoving me in the ass effectively as I'm pressing down on it that my body is responding to and dealing with that's requiring me to hold a bunch of positions. And when I go on a leg press, there's a bunch of forces coming in through my feet and through my back that my body is having to respond to and, and deal with. And when I do a squat, the same thing is true. And when I do a bicep curl, the same thing is true. And when I help my nan get out of a chair, 
the same thing is true. Their forces meets anatomy is the whole physical world. And so everything that you do is biomechanics. There's no such thing as a non-biomechanics exercise, right? We just have got this weird idea that it just means gimp masks and bands and stuff at this particular point. And it's bollocks. That's not what it means. It means everything. And so if you don't have an understanding to some degree of the forces that are involved, how they're interacting with your body, how your body is responding to them, when we then come to talk about how do you progress an exercise or regress an exercise, how do you choose what's right for your client? And if it isn't right for the client, why isn't it? Like what's going on in that exercise that means it's not that great for them or their experience of it in that moment isn't that great? And if you don't have any appreciation of the forces and the anatomy, you're just guessing. <laughs> like the only thing you've got is, uh, okay, well, um, I know that this other exercise sort of works this thing because... I've done this exercise before and I felt it work this other thing. So if they don't do the squat, well, then they, they could do they could do a leg press. They could do a leg extension. They could do a, a split squat. But we have no frame of reference of what the differences are and what the similarities are between those things. And also, people have this weird idea that when you talk about progression and regression of stuff, almost universally what people start thinking is changing the exercise rather than changing the performance of the exercise or how the exercise is loaded or how we how we actually go and do the thing. Um, and because progression and regression is this giant you know ladder that you can run up and down on every exercise. And when you've got a bit more of an understanding of these things, God, I remember my first, the first question I ever got asked by Michael in a group that made me go, shit, I, I don't know the answer to this, was in a dumbbell lat raise, why is it hardest when your arm is at the top. And I was like, I don't know, eight years into being a PT or something, seven years, something like that. And I went, I, I don't know. And I was like, that's a bit of a bollocks uh, place to be seven years in when you think of yourself as a nerd who likes to go and read exercise research and who wants to stay on top of stuff and, you know, puts a lot of time and effort and been to Brad Schoenfeld seminars and Eric Helm seminars and used to try and read as much as I could. And Anytime Brett Contreras had a book, yeah, I've got the Glute Lab book kicking near me, right? Like, you know, I was I was doing my best. And, and I was like, why the hell don't I know the answer to that? Because you kind of go, well, it almost self-evidently is. And if you're listening to this and you're, you're not sure, just hold your arm out to the side while you're sat upright for a minute, leave it there, and leave your other one just down by your side and wait and find out which one starts getting tired first, right? And you go, oh, yeah, this one's definitely getting harder. And then you're kind of like, well, why? Like, did did the dumbbell that I used get heavier? Like, well, no, it was five kilos. I'm pretty sure it's still five kilos when it's out to the side. All right, well, that's not it. Gravity still goes downwards. I don't think gravity's changed because that would be weird. So I don't think it's that. So, but it obviously, obviously is harder. And I was like, why the hell don't I know the answer to that? It turns out to be a, a thing we could call a moment arm, which it, that, then here's one of the big things when you get into exercise mechanics. It's full of wanky phrases that, you know, people like to be like, look at the words I know. And it's bollocks, right? Like the, the great thing with that is a moment arm. All right. I'll give you the technical definition and then it won't help you at all because the technical definition of a moment arm ready is the perpendicular distance between an axis and a line of force. And there we go. I've given the technical definition. I'm confident everyone listening now is like, ah, Paul, I understood beautifully and completely everything that you just said that came out of your mouth. And like, no, that's not what happens. Whenever we used to stand there for most of things and people would say that, I would look around the room and there'd just be like confused eyes that were afraid to say, 
I have no idea what you just said, but I feel like I should know it because everyone here seems really smart. And so then you just get people kind of nodding. And then other people who've, who've memorized the definition. But if you ask me, okay, can you say that in other words to me? They're like, uh, no. Uh. Or can you point at it in an exercise? Because that's the bit that matters. Like, can you manipulate it? And if you can't see it, you can't manipulate it, right? And it's there. So, okay, how do we do this? Well, I always found that the, the, the best way of thinking of well, what is a moment arm is it's a fancy way of describing leverage because we have an understanding of leverage, right? Like if you're using a crowbar, you don't have the bar right next to the little hingy bit that you put underneath something. You hold the very end of the bar further away because you've got more leverage over it. If I sit you on a seesaw, right, and hopefully you've not had such a shit childhood that you've never been on a seesaw, right? If we sit on seesaws, what happens if I move one person closer in, assuming they weigh kind of the same thing? Like, well, if I move someone closer in, they have less leverage over the middle of the seesaw bit that we're seesawing around. And so if I slide in, maybe the guy who's further away now drops down and I've raised up. So something's gone on kind of there. Or why do we put the handle on a door not right next to the hinge of the door? Why is it the other end of the door? The answer to all of these is it has more leverage around something that's spinning, an axis, something we spin around. And so a moment arm is just a fancy description of the, when this dumbbell, to go back to the dumbbell lat raise, the dumbbell has more leverage over my shoulder joint in that particular position. And that increased leverage means my muscles go, oh, fuck, right? And I've got to pull on this particular thing. Because you could, and when we do stuff at the PT Project now, especially our one-day event and even our, our mentorship stuff, we start with it very deliberately with um, sort of experiments and playing. And one of the things that uh, I <laughs> that we do is... Uh, the the day starts with an experiment on a on a lat raise, and I deliberately ask the question: Who here reckons they can lat raise a two and a half kilo dumbbell? Because you know, pretty much everyone should have done a two and a half kilo dumbbell lat raise, and they'll be like. But they also know because I've been speaking for a, a you know I don't know ten minutes by this point. The yeah, I feel like this is a trick question somehow. Uh, <laughs> and so then you pick on the biggest dude in the room, right? And you're like, right, you're massive. Right, you're 120 kilos, six three, Jack C. This is fucking embarrassing. If you can't do a two and a half kilo lat race, dude, there's a 53 kilo female over here who can definitely smash a two and a half kilo lat race. So this is just going to be embarrassing for you. And so you kind of get that person up. And there's a two and a half kilo dumbbell by my foot. What they can't see is I'll have set up another two and a half kilo dumbbell that I've attached to the end of a broomstick that's just round the corner kind of thing. And so they come out and they don't get to use the dumbbell on the floor. They have to hold the end of the broomstick with a two and a half kilo at the other end of the broomstick and then attempt to lat raise this thing. And they can't because the leverage is too much as it gets to a certain point, like, right? And I don't care if you bring me Eddie Hall, if you get me a long enough broomstick, he will not be able to lat raise a two and a half kilo dumbbell because what your body is responding to isn't just the weight. The weight is only part of the thing that you're lifting. In fact, it's about one half of what you're dealing with. What you're dealing with is a combination of the weight and its leverage, its moment arm. And so when we're in exercises, we can fuck around. We can play with the moment arm more than we can play with just the load. The load you can change by just picking different dumbbells. But what if you've stuck with what you've got? What if you're in the pandemic and everyone had to work out at home and you only had a couple of things? What did you do, right? How do you manipulate these things so that the client in front of you experiences something that makes them go, that was cool. That was different because that's the key. It's the key is not just saying fucking fancy words because I can't teach exercise mechanics in Mandarin, right? Like I don't know the words, but I can put 
a Chinese person through one hell of a session because it doesn't matter about the words. It's the training effect that we create as we go through this that is the important part. So I don't know if that answered the question. Yeah, definitely. Like it's it's obviously down to, well, it helps us prevent injury, which contributes to oh, obviously what, long-term. Oh, why does it matter? Oh yeah, God, okay. Super <laughs> important. But also it improves your ability to to program effectively regardless of what equipment you've got access to. Yeah, so I, I can probably add to that in that case. Now I remember what the actual question was and started. Apologies, <laughs> listeners. Tangents welcome, and it was a very useful tangent, so it's absolutely fine. Okay, cool, good. I'm glad. I'm happy to hear it. Okay, so you've, you've touched on a couple. One is, you know, if we've got an injury or we're working around an injury, how do we work around it? How do we adjust? And again, without an understanding of the forces and the anatomy and what this person is dealing with, we're kind of guessing. The next part, I think, really comes into its own. If someone has like a body part they struggle to grow, they struggle to connect with, do you know how to start exploring that and figure out, you know, how do I get them to experience this thing? Because sometimes people who get into exercise mechanics go way too far and they start slagging off exercises that demonstrably work for hypertrophy. Of course they work. Have you seen the size of some of the people doing these exercises? We can't say the bench press sucks for hypertrophy because it doesn't have a great profile. You're like, tell the giant man with the giant chest that <laughs> and then get back to me. It's like, no, it works great for some people some of the time but what do we do if it were not those people or it's not that kind of thing or they you know they keep i was one of these people or, you know you had to bench press so eight years of my shoulders hurting but i was still bench pressing because i was like i had to bench press uh <laughs> before i started to question maybe maybe that's something about this exercise doesn't agree with me um but you know i ran at that wall repeatedly before i wanted to learn that that particular lesson um so what do you do with a client who's not getting that well, again, suddenly you now have a massive toolbox of things that you can start to play with. And finally, I think the, the maybe the biggest one, and I think this is the problem, one of the biggest problems with exercise mechanics online and the way it's generally spoke about, is that it's often spoke about in absolutist terms. Like, you know, uh, if you use this cuff lat raise and you set it up at this height, that's going to be the, the best way of doing this particular thing. And you're looking for this angle and at this point, and if you do all that, this is what you will get. And anyone who has worked with more than 10 people will find that that seems to be bollocks. Because again, you're going to get a bunch of people who go, yeah, this felt great. And I really like that. And that was great. And that's cool because that's hopefully what you were going for. Right. But you will definitely then find some people who they're like, you know, you're just trying to train their delt here and they're complaining it hurts their earlobe. And you're like, what? <laughs> right? Why are you getting that? That's, that's a kind of strange thing. So, and this goes back to in-person stuff as well you have to be asking your client what they're feeling and what they're experiencing because I don't have x-ray vision. I don't know what's going on definitely internally at what's going on and fucking no one does. And so the best way we have this is, you know, if Danny's training, we're going through something, we've set it up and we've done our considerations and we've lined things up and this should be sweet. I still need to check in with Danny and being like, what are you getting right now? Where are you feeling this? And what are you kind of, and like them running it through my head of being like, is that what I wanted her to feel in this particular thing? And so even when you've got the toolkit, that doesn't mean you get to switch off and think, ah, don't need to pay attention to the client. No, no, no. Right. Like if you want to be client centered in any way, and whether that's through your dietary approaches and your psychological approaches or your training approaches, the client has the answers in them, whether they know them or not, right. is a slightly separate, separate thing, but I have to check in with you and go, what are you getting? Because I can't know that no matter how well-developed my biomechanics toolkit is without checking in with you. And I think that's hugely missing from the online space. 
Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I think you made some really good points there. And you mentioned your guys work with the PT project. Mm. How might someone get started if they want to further their knowledge in the realms of exercise mechanics? And obviously, your guys work is a great place to start. But is there any way that they can start to think about it within their coaching, whether that's on the gym floor or online, before they start to maybe attend something like your guys courses or events and things like that? Yeah, you absolutely can. It's one of those ones that's that's always hard. Sometimes I get asked the question, like, what books would you recommend for biomechanics? And the answer is none of them. Because if you buy those books before you've already gotten familiar with a bunch of it, you're just going to be terrified by a crap load of equations and terminology that you're like, well, this appears to be trigonometry. Why am I learning trigonometry? Now, I like trigonometry because I said I'm a nerd, right? And I was like, oh, to get into this, I have to learn physics, which really means you have to learn maths. But trainers don't need to know that. <laughs> particularly right unless you want to really jump off the deep end and go into those things so books aren't going to help you sometimes people ask like what's the best book or the best app for learning anatomy and honestly i would say similar things kind of none of them right my favorite way of teaching people anatomy is to get a skeleton and then people are like oh but that's like 150 quid i'm like i know but i promise you a skeleton with balloons will teach you way more about stuff than parroting words because that's all these things end up sort of sounding like is just a bunch of words and they're like latin words so, you know, unless you want to talk bicep crap and you're like, well, okay, so the, the insertion of the biceps is on the radial tuberosity. What is that? And then it's it splits off into two and you've got a short head and a long head and the short head goes to the coracoid process of the scapula and the long head wraps around the top of the humerus and inserts onto the supraglenoid tubercle. Cool. Is that useful information for you on the gym floor? Has that helped you in any way? Can you picture where those things are on your client as well as we're doing this? No. But if I stick a balloon onto a little nodule on a bumpy bony bit and go that thing right there so you can see it and then I drag that balloon up and stick it on another bit and go, right, this balloon is going to shorten along here because that's all muscles do. As it does that, what does it do to the arm here? Oh, I can see it lift that. Or, and I move it around. What happens if it does it in this position or that position? Suddenly you have anatomy coming alive in like a 3D manner that means something to you that you can learn, that you can then take to the gym floor and start playing with. I was going to say playing with people. That sounded super sketchy, right? But that you can actually start using, which is great because otherwise they're just, they're just words. And that might make you sound smart, but that doesn't change what you give the client. And the most persuasive thing that we can ever do, they're not words, they're experiences. If I can create you an experience of something, that's more compelling than a million words. You're like, oh, I've never felt that before. Sweet. I've made you an acolyte and a disciple in three minutes because I got you to experience something. Um, you know, the reason that full days of eating work as much as a lot of the industry don't like them is because people copy by doing and mimicking first. They don't learn theory first they learn experience first and then you layer the theory on afterwards right so that's just completely separate topic but you know i think there's a there's a tangent related um in that particular thing so if you're then starting you can pick up bits online and instagram whether that's through people like rts so i'm a big advocate of the rts which was initially founded by a guy called tom purvis in the states if you're in the uk it's run by michael goulden of integra so their courses are great then they're not huge on social media um, they, they should be better at that uh so it's not a great place to necessarily start if you're not already wanting to pay and go and do things but if you are wanting to i couldn't recommend them more um so then you're left with okay what are me and jimbo putting out 
kind of on Instagram a little bit. What's people like uh, Cass at N1 puts out some pretty good stuff. There's bits I disagree with Cass on, but Cass is a really lovely dude. He's a really thoughtful guy and he really cares and wants to be um, great. And he has way more positives to offer than anything I would want to debate slightly. Um, so you can bit, you can pick bits from that. Say again, some of these people, I think Ben Yanes has some stuff, but a lot of it for me ends up falling into that category of it becomes a bit too absolutist in Oh, you set this up and then this will happen. And I'm like, work with more people and tell me that's true, right? Because you're going to get people who just, that's not what they experience. I don't care what you keep telling me or what your bit of research on seven people told you. We're not working with just those seven people. So we need to know how do we manipulate that. And to be fair to Cass, that's why his company is called N1 and N of one, one individual. And that individual is unique and different to others. So there are some similarities and places to start, but then you kind of play from there. So for me, if I'm trying to give that, I, it's one of the reasons we try and give stuff that you can use and do on everything that we do, because that's the bit that matters. So, you know, if someone, let's say you're doing a leg press, a plate, or I tell you what, no, forget the leg press, because you can just do this sat anywhere. Do a wall squat, right? So find a wall, squat down to 90 degrees, right? And hopefully you've got some grippy trainers and a grippy floor, or this won't work, right? But as you sit down at 90 degrees, I want you to just play with something for me. What happens if you try and shove your feet along the floor as hard as you possibly can? So you're not going to pick your feet up and move them. It's not what we're saying. Do not move them. But inside your trainer, try and drive your big toe through the front of your trainer as hard as you humanly can. Right. And like, what do you experience while you're doing that still sitting at 90 degrees? So you haven't changed the joint angle. You haven't changed your shape. You've changed your intent and what you're trying to cause happen. And what you'll likely find is your quads go, ah, and start kind of screaming at you. Okay, what happens then if you're still doing that thing and you've got currently your whole back pressing into the wall? What happens now if I almost lean my chest forwards off it? So you're pressing through, let's call it like your sacrum area, just above your ass, your low back type area. So you're going to be shoving your toes as hard as you can and driving into the wall through this low back thing. And if you do that, your quads should start singing even more. And then we could play with doing the opposite. What if I wanted less quad in the same position doing the same thing? Well, instead of shoving forwards with my toes, this one's harder, right? What happens if I try and almost pull backwards? I'm almost going to try and drag my feet back towards me. Again, do not pick them up and move them. Just play with this idea of dragging through the back of the trainer now. And now once you play with that, I'm like, what does that start to feel like? And now rather than pressing through the low back, what happens if I press a bit more through my shoulder blade type area? And if I do those two things, oh, weirdly, that feels like a lot less quad than when I do the opposite of driving forward and pressing through my low back. And then the question is why? <laughs> right. And the answers to that are found in these things we call resultants, which just sound complicated. But really, you're playing with friction on the floor and the floor shoving up against you. And when two things act on your foot at the same time, they sort of combine and create one force that's acting on you that creates a giant challenge to your knee. Okay, cool. Well, that's interesting. Well, you could do the same thing on a leg press. I could do the same thing while I'm doing a hack squat. You know, I can play with some of this stuff. And this is, again, when we teach, we try and do this of, I want you to have a moment where you go, huh, that's weird. And I kind of want you to not necessarily have the full answer yet, but I want you to have experienced that it's definitely true, <laughs> right? In a, a way that you're like, well, that's undeniable. Because from then I have your buy-in, your curiosity enough to now start exploring some terminology and some things that we do have to learn at some point. There's no getting around it, right? But unless I've got the buy-in first, and this is, I think, what the muscle matter stuff used to get wrong, is 
you didn't get the buy-in first. It was just, here's some facts, <laughs> right? Take it as written. Maybe we'll explore them at some point. And then we'll, you know, we'll demonstrate this thing on one person and you can all watch <laughs> with 20 of you. But that's not how people learn. That's not, especially not beginners. You know, if you've been doing it a couple of years, then that's kind of okay. Because I've done it enough to know, yeah, I know what they're getting at here. I know roughly what that feels like and what they're playing with. But until then, eh, I want you to be like, like I felt with the dumbbell lat raise. Huh, that's, yeah, fuck. Why is, yeah, it's definitely true, but why? And then I can take you on a little journey of, of kind of discovery. So it's an annoying answer that means I don't have a great solution for people until they start sort of delving in for those reasons. But yeah, hopefully I give something. I actually tell, told a lie earlier. My introduction to exercise mechanics was not through the muscle mentors originally. It was when Callum was working at M10, I went to the yep. M10 seminars. So that yep. was my first sort of like brief introduction. And I remember they made us do, I think it was, they made us do a body weight squat on like a very, very, very light RDL and yep. made it feel like incredibly difficult. And that was my first introduction. And there then off go. the back of that, I was like, oh, I, I want to learn more about this. Exactly. It's exactly right. Because that's basically everyone. Like, I don't know anyone who gets into it because they saw equations and were like, yeah, cool. <laughs> that's 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 not how you get into this field. You get into it because, you know, you could have been training for years and you, you know, you you've clearly learned lots of things about training because you do it as a job and you've changed your own physique and you've probably got some clients results and stuff. And so you're like, oh, OK, yeah, I feel like I understand this. And then this thing happens and you're like, well, I've, hang on. <laughs> I've never felt that before, or I've certainly not felt that with that lighter weight. What the hell just happened? Like yeah. the only way previously to progress was you add more load to the bar. That's the progression. That's the only thing you kind of think about. And suddenly this world opens up in front of you and it's like, ah, oh, it's exciting. Yeah. Unless it's then poorly taught after that point. And then we kind of crush the enthusiasm and the liking of that stuff. And that's, that's such a shame because it really, I don't think has to be that way. Yeah, I agree with that. And you spoke briefly about a lot of the sort of what can seem complicated terminology that is used in the exercise mechanics realm. Do you feel like it has its place ever to use this sort of terminology with your clients? Or should you coach them in a way where you don't have to use this terminology? This feels like a very leading question, Danny. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not no, leading I, I, at all. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, well, absolutely. Unless your clients work for NASA, in which case, carry on, right? But for the for the most part, you know, with I think I think coaches often want to are quite insecure in many ways, and so want to sound intellectual and want to sound smart. So I think there's an element of that. I think there's also an element of people don't really fully know what they're saying with these words. So the only way they have to say it is by parroting the exact phrases back. Yeah. But really, that means you haven't properly really learned it in a in a great way, because you can talk about at least a lot of this. I'm not saying every part of it. We can't talk about a thing we would call component forces without it being a bit dull and technical and possibly even involving some trigonometry. But you just wouldn't you don't need to talk about component forces with <laughs> with any of your clients almost ever. Like all of my clients these days, well, not all 90 percent of my clients these days are coaches themselves. And I still don't talk in hyper-technical language for half of it. Not because I can't, but because it just isn't necessarily appropriate. And it doesn't make me any more intellectual just because I wrapped it in bigger words that, you know, look like I mouthfucked a thesaurus. Like, that's a different thing than actually teaching the thing um, reasonably and well and effectively. There's always a great line that communication happens on the terms of the listener, right? So 
Danny, if she's listening to this, I'm always trying to pick back up on as I'm talking. Is she smiling? Is she nodding? Does she look fucking vacant? And like, I have no idea what you just said. Right. You're trying to pick up on those bits and pieces of like, okay, these people are with me and they're kind of coming along with me. I still need to check in. Does that make sense? If I want to make sure that something has made sense, here's the easiest question in the world. Can you say that thing back to me? And then shut the fuck up and let them say it back to you, right? Like whatever that thing happens to be, I'm just trying to verify that I haven't just said a bunch of words that the other person is just nodding at, but they've actually understood. So because that's the bit that matters, certainly as an educator, the bit that matters is that the coaches who come and learn from us feel like, oh, that was awesome. I generally, and they don't have to understand every single bit every moment, every point, because no one does that in their learning journey of anything, right? But they generally followed the gist. They felt pretty good with it. And most importantly, they know what they can start to do with it and explore with it and play. So when they go back to their clients, they can be like, ah, right, try this. We got shown this little setup thing and do that. And they're like, oh yeah, it's amazing. And then you get that kind of feedback from people who've come and they did it on their clients and their clients felt differently. And now they feel confident because confidence comes from success, right? Like if you keep failing at something, you should not be confident about it because that would be weird, right? So you need to see yourself succeed at this particular thing. And that builds confidence more than any standing in the mirror affirmation telling yourself you're a wonderful trainer is ever going to actually give you because that's that's very face value <laughs> type confidence, right? The shit that really you know, sticks with you and, and drives you forward needs to come from success. Um, and so checking in with that person, is it leading something? Do you even need to tell them about any of the why? Like, not really. Like, if look, if your client says tummy, say tummy. You don't have to say core. You don't need to say rectus abdominis, right? Or whatever else that they've kind of particularly said. If they're, you know, generally speaking, communicate on the with the words that they're using because they will understand what that means. And then, you know, it's the mark of a professional in some endeavor to be able to flip between languages, right? So if we want to talk in technical stuff, cool, I can talk in technical stuff, but I can also talk down here, at like introductory kind of things and figure out, all right, well, actually, do you know what? There's no words that will show you this just yet. Do this with me though, <laughs> right? And then we do a thing and they're like, oh yeah, that was weird. And now I can explain a little bit as to, as to what that particular kind of thing was, or I can make it visual or we do whatever we kind of need to do. But you know, the idea that you, you're just there to sound smart, use big fancy words. It's like, ah, uh, I, I really dislike it. Um, it is one of my least, least favorite things because it, it's just not about the other person and coaching or educating. It's about the other person. It's not about you. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And I think it's especially important now there are so many coaches on social media and it often seems like they're so wrapped up in like competing with each other and using these big fancy words as opposed to actually helping the people that are trying to help. And it's like, no, make it understandable to the people that you're actually trying to help. Stop trying to compete with every other coach in the industry. Like it's yeah. just not helpful. Do you think some of that though is really like, I mean, how many coaches do you think are really even clear on talking to someone other than themselves? Yeah. Not many. Like, <laughs> I, I just think people get so lost in stuff that like doesn't matter when actually they need to just focus on what they're trying to achieve and like who they're trying to help um, and focus on them, which I just think there are not enough people doing. Yeah, no, I, no look, and I, I say this as someone who did this incorrectly for years, right? Because I just didn't think about it from a what I would call a business perspective or that perspective, at least of understanding who is this audience I'm talking to, what problems do they have and how do I help them with their problems? And part of the understanding of the them is, you know, what words do they use? What do they talk about? And all that kind of stuff that goes into that so that I can then meet them where they're at 
and then actually have a chance of succeeding with the tools that I have because they've understood them. They understand that I'm talking to them and therefore we can kind of do things. Whereas previously, I didn't put too much thought into that. I was like, ah, use the words that I use and I'm interested in this topic. Therefore, everyone else should be interested in this topic regardless of how I, <laughs> of how I present it. And it, it, it didn't go as well. Yeah. And at the end of the day as well, I think, like you mentioned previously, it shows huge understanding of what you're actually talking about if you can make it understandable to the people that you're trying to reach and translate it on different levels. And I think that's massively like underrated. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it, yeah, I have nothing else to add to that other than saying yes. So I was just saying yes in other ways. Yeah. And so you mentioned tracking on a logbook earlier. Do you think people often place too much emphasis on their logbook? And if so, why could this be problematic? Yeah, for, I mean, look, as with many things, um, some people go too far and some people don't go far enough. There are more benefits to a logbook than not keeping a logbook for, for long-term kind of progress within things, absolutely. Um, and over the last 10 years, let's say, the, the drive for people to record their lifts improved loads. And I think that's generally a, a net positive. However, it what it ends up, the reason it can be problematic is it ends up placing progressive overload only in the sense of I got an extra rep or I put a small amount more weight on the bar as the metric for progress. Now, if you're a power lifter, that is your metric for progress. So be my guest, right? But outside of that, even if we're talking hypertrophy or kind of whatever, we said earlier that the load in the hand in the dumbbell lat raise was only one half of what you're actually dealing with, right? What you're actually dealing with is a combination of the load and the leverage, the load and the moment arm. And so, and when we did the wall squat, if you, and if you've not played with this, then go and play with it, right? Or the whatever, we played with this thing that created a resultant, which, okay, we vaguely understood what Paul said while he was talking, but we won't rehash old ground, right? But we've got two forces acting on a single point of application creates this Oh, we're back at line of force. We mentioned line of force when we said that really complicated definition of perpendicular distance. Uh, perpendicular, by the way, is one of those words that I feel like everyone is afraid to say. I have no idea what that word means because it's one of those words that we all feel like we should know what it means. But perpendicular just means at 90 degrees to, at a right angle to. It makes a T-shape with. So parallel lines, perpendicular is the opposite. So if you were thinking of the letter H, the sides, the, the vertical bits in the H are parallel to each other. And then the bar in between them is perpendicular to those lines, right? So a H gives us both parallel lines and perpendicular. So perpendicular, so perpendicular distance between an axis, a thing we spin around, and a line of force, right? A line of force is just the direction that that thing wants to go in at that particular point. So if you hold a dumbbell and you drop it, where's it go? It goes down, right? Because gravity's direction is down. Okay, so when we're dealing with dumbbells and barbells and stuff, we're dealing with a downward trajectory. When you're dealing with machines, that starts to change because you can do fancy things with engineering. But let's just stay with the kind of dumbbell thing or the barbell thing. You know, we started to, okay, we've got this, this load. That's one part. And that's the bit that we write down in the logbook, right? I used the five. I used the 7.5. I used the 120. Uh, or if you're these days, I did six plates per side or whatever it is that you've decided to use as your, as your mark. And it's always the twenties. No one ever, you're not allowed to call any of the other plates, even though they're plates, uh, plates, which always tickles me. Um, my favorite one is calling things biscuits. That always also tickles me, but, uh, right. I was like, we need, we need a whole laundry list of different names for things. There should be muffins. There should be donuts. There should be, I want more things now, uh, but anyway, right. So you, you've got this bit that you're recording. You just experienced on the wall squat 
the fact that my quads lit up loads more, even though I didn't add any load to you. But my quads definitely responded to that thing as though, as though I'd increased the load on them somehow. And I had. I'd increased the leverage over my knee that my quad was responding to by changing this thing called resultant by playing with the friction on the floor and the contact point on my back. And that undoubtedly increased the challenge on my quad. But how do you write that down? Like, well, wait a minute. I pushed with a 7.3 on the Richter scale with my foot. Like, you're not, you can't, you can't quantify that. It's like the same thing. Like, you know, when you record reps, how do you record a half rep or a yeah. 0.38 of a rep? So let's say you've got like a pull-up that someone's doing and, you know, they're early in their pull-up journey towards doing a pull-up. And so they can do two reps maybe three, right? Well, they do two and they go for another one and they're uh, and kind of dying and crying on their way up, but they don't get all the way. Well, was that attempt at the rep pointless for them? Did it lead to no positive adaptation further down the line that meant the next week they actually got the third rep in a way that maybe they wouldn't have got there that quickly if they hadn't bothered trying for that one? I don't know, maybe. I'm saying that there's something different, however, that happened in that rep that wasn't recorded in the logbook. In the same way that when we drive through the feet and we play with the resultant and we increase the challenge on the quad, we increase something we call the torque, the how much rotation of force causes around a joint, which is what torque is. And that's really what our muscles are responding to. Like we increase the challenge on the musculature, but it wasn't by increasing the load in the logbook. And so, well, what one are we chasing? Are we chasing the challenge on the muscle or are we chasing just the numbers in the logbook? Now, I actually think that these things should be thought of like a Venn diagram, that there's an overlap, right? If you just chase maximum sensation all the time, you're probably not progressing as well as you could. But equally, if you're just chasing progress on the logbook without the view, you know, are you trying to bodybuild or are you trying to just be stronger? And even then you can make an argument of like, what do you mean by strength, right? Strength to some degree is just how much force something can produce or tolerate or withstand. That's a different thing than the barbell went a certain distance for this person, which was a shorter distance than it went from the person with smaller arms, right? But we said the smaller arm person was stronger because they put more weight on the bar, but they didn't move the load as far. So what do I mean by strength within that particular thing? There's loads of things that go into that. And, you know, there's no right. The, one of the points with that is there's no right or wrong answer on what is strength particularly. Um, but they're harder to quantify. And if you've got some, the biggest issue, I think, to bring this back to something a bit more tangible is when you just chase the logbook is people can get dumb <laughs> and they can chase beating the logbook in spite of things aching in spite of things being a bit broken in spite of some warning signs really that your body is giving you that maybe this exercise isn't for you that well or the way you're doing it isn't for you that well or uh, the frequency within which you're doing it isn't quite right or the volume that you're using isn't quite right or or whatever right but yeah, I got 12 reps at this last time and we have to beat the logbook, right? So I've got to get 13 reps this week or I'm a pussy, right? So, you know, I'm going to scream at myself a bunch and I'm going to beat that and fuck my shoulder that's crying, right? And so off they go. Almost inevitably, those people will break, will break down uh, at some point and, and get some things because they're just ignoring signals that their body is giving them because they placed the logbook ahead of the concept. And the concept was, I want to grow my muscle over time. The logbook isn't the way that you do that. The logbook is just a way of recording it and, get, and steering you and helping guide you more efficiently to that. But it is not that by itself.
yeah I completely agree with all of that and like I am always saying to my clients about how especially if your goal is body composition related we're not just trying to move as much weight as we can from A to B. We are trying to place the most effective challenge possible on the working muscles that we're trying yeah. to target over time. And the logbook, the numbers don't always tell us that. Yeah, yeah exactly that. Couldn't agree more. I like that definition. And you, well, you haven't spoken about this yet, actually, but um, the term active range of motion is thrown around quite a lot. Yeah. What does it actually mean to work within our active range of motion? And why can this be safer and more effective when the goal is to build muscle tissue over the long term? Yeah, so this is one of those ones that is definitely um, <laughs> poorly understood by lots of people who kind of say it as well. So if we think of these ideas, we have active, which starts to suggest we might then have passive, right? And then range of motion. How big can a joint go through a particular excursion an arc whatever right and every joint has a limitation right none of your joints have 360 degrees everywhere right not even your shoulder okay so you know how much full range of motion should my elbow have well it probably shouldn't be more than 180 right like if it's going beyond let's it's definitely not 270 it's definitely not 360 degrees otherwise you've definitely snapped your elbow right so the ends of range of motion are always structurally determined, right? The possible end range. And to passively move someone, imagine someone is unconscious, unconscious, unconscious. I put an extra syllable in there for some reason. Uh, they're unconscious or they're dead, right? Either of these will work. You take their limb, you can bend it, flop it around, move it kind of wherever you want. Again, to the end of the joint range that that joint has from a structural perspective available. And... Okay, so passive range. Passive just means the body itself didn't pull itself into that position. So when we say active, really what we're meaning is through my own steam, through my own muscular contraction, I pulled myself into a position. And if you've ever been to physio or anything kind of like that, you may have experienced someone, you know, doing some stuff around your hip where maybe you pull your knee up to 90 degrees ish and it doesn't feel like it can go any further. But if someone presses on you, it can go a little bit further, right? And maybe that came from the hip. Maybe it came from the low back tilting. Eh, I don't know yet because you'd have to see what, what happened within the person. But you might be able to get yourself to a position that actually with an external force, you can go further than, right? And let's assume that that meant in the appropriate joint, not just my knees got closer to my face. Yeah, but your hip joint didn't go through any more flexion. You started tucking your low back under so that the knee got closer to the face but the hip didn't go through any more flexion, right? And so when we start doing sometimes full range of motion, whatever that means for certain people, uh, on some things, let's take the leg press because we've spoken about the leg press. The leg press often has quite a heavy load on it, and that thing can compress you like an accordion, right? And so if you really want to let it, you can get your knees right close into your face. Hell, if I put enough load on a leg press and really don't control it, I could probably suck myself off. But I'd probably break myself whilst I was trying to do that thing. So I don't know that it'd be worth the trade-off within that, right? With enough external force, I can put myself into a weird bunch of shapes that my body and skeleton will not thank me for. And if we take it to the extreme ideas like that, then it becomes kind of obvious, right? I can't take you to 270 degrees of elbow extension because your elbow will obviously have snapped, right? So if I go way beyond a range, it's obviously stupid, right? Because the joint doesn't have it. 
Then you've got this, what I would might call a grayer area. If you were to just exceed a range, is that bad? Is that definitely going to cause injury? Yeah, you get into grays, which you can't give hard answers for. Like, well, how frequently you do you do it? Under what load? Uh, what's your genetic tolerance and disposition to those particular things? Do they have any pre-existing injuries um, within there? Like, you kind of, pain is complicated as well. Too many biomechanical people think that pain is just about signals from the body, but it's not. There's a psychosocial element of this, of your body interpreting signals that go along as well. An ex-girlfriend of mine broke her spine falling off a horse, had to lie perfectly still for six months in a body cast and couldn't move at all from that thing. And then part of rehabbing that process, you'd have thought, like, we'll make the, the core stronger, we'll make her move better from the visual perspective of analysis, and then her pain should improve. But we did all those things. She was demonstrably stronger and looked like she moved well, but her pain was worse. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. This was, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, probably now. Um, and so I ended up learning more about this thing called pain science. So pain is complex. So we have to be cautious that when we talk about biomechanics things, we're not catastrophizing and making people think that, well, if you exceed any of these things by a little bit, you're going to implode into dust. Because I can't say that because that's not true either. And I don't know where the hard dividing line is. But I know that if I take you to the extreme, there's clearly a line we all agree upon. The elbow doesn't go there, right? And if you try, things going to snap. And if I go nowhere near it, well, I might be playing it a bit too safe. So there's a gray in between what do we mean by active and passive type stuff. But I generally use the definition, can my musculature pull me into that shape all by itself? So if you're doing like a, like a press-up type thing, if I take my hand and, and put my forearm sort of parallel to the ground, so it's flat and horizontal, and then I pull my wrist back as though I'm about to get into like a push-up position. I can't bend my wrist under my own steam through my forearm extensors, the muscles on the back of my forearm. I actually can't pull it to like 90 degrees. Like Danny can see this on the screen. I can't get it there. But if I take my other hand and press it, I can get it there, right? There is a, dis a difference between what I can actively through my own muscular output pull myself into and what an external force can shove me into. And I might be able to close that gap just because my active range currently is X doesn't mean it has to stay at X. Maybe if I train these muscles or I do a few bits and pieces, I can improve this. And maybe I can get it to the point that my active range and my passive range are the same range as each other. And they're not going to stay the same every single day. If you've got DOMS, your range then tends to decrease, right? Like, oh, I can't sit down, uh, <laughs> right? You've experienced a range reduction at play from your nervous system kind of going on there. Then you get this bit of going, right, right. Well, if I can't, under my own muscular output, pull myself into that position, all things being equal, then how do I get back out of the position? Or how do I stabilize the joint effectively in there? And that's where it gets to be uh, quite a lot harder because if you can't rely on just your muscle tissue to control those ranges, which you've just demonstrated to yourself that you can't because you tried and you couldn't, right? Then other stuff has to do the stabilizing for you instead. That doesn't mean the muscle switches off and turns to nothing, but it does mean other shit gets involved. And the other shit has to be passive stuff like ligaments, uh, like joint capsule, like bursts that you could be pressing on, like other stuff. And that other stuff tends to get a bit more wear and tear. So generally, and there's no real research on this because people don't do research very well on stuff. Um, and I don't think this is a well-understood idea or concept because you'd have to do it differently for every single individual 
than uh, because everyone's active range is a little bit different to each other. So you can't be like, we had all participants go to 90 degrees of, uh. it's like, well, no. But if you don't standardize that, then the forces they were exposed to as they were in their active range is different. So there's a variable that you'd have to then go, well, we got them to do their active range, but that then changed the exercise they were experiencing for every single one of those people. So you've got, pro again, we'll kind of come back to, you've got a load of problems in research. Um, but, you know, in my experience and in everyone else I spoke to with this, who understands this and uses as well, the reduction in issues that you get from people complaining that their joints ache and that it feels much more like where they would like it to be when they actually learn how to stay within their active range, which is specific to an exercise. And so you have to test in each exercise is night and day. It's one of the most important things for me as a coaching, as a coach who works with people, arguably the two biggest things I, I end up emphasizing in the early stages of working with a new client is staying within active range and figuring out what does that mean and where is it on that exercise for that person and slowing down mainly so we can stop at the right points <laughs> and actually explore where should you move everyone says you should tuck your elbows loads to do pressing now for the chest but that just annoys my shoulder so uh but i have to keep it there I'm like do you right let's explore again we come back to it. your body has the answers they can't be predetermined by me ahead of time to know definitively what they are i can play with them but if you're going rapidly because bang explosion gives me more motor unit recruitment which leads to more muscle growth cool i got you i'm with you right but that's secondary to me placing the tension where I want the tension. And if I haven't slowed down to figure out where is that for Danny on this movement? Where is it on this movement? Where's the end that she can control? And if she moves it this way, ah, there it is. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, if I do it like this, that's what I feel it right where I want to feel it now. Okay, let's practice that skill under control for more than three reps, right? Because no one learns skills in three reps, right? And then we can worry about speeding them up and doing other things kind of after that point. So early phases in practical takeaways for coaches, staying within active ranges and slowing the fuck down so your client can actually pay attention a bit more internally to what's going on tend to be huge things. So that would be the active range discussion, I think. Yeah, I agree with all of that. A way in which I usually put it to my clients who in, in terms of like exercise and training for hypertrophy or body composition related goals, I tend to explain it like it's basically the range in which the the load is in the control of the muscles that you're trying to target yep. as opposed to putting unnecessary strain on joints tendons and ligaments and that usually sort of like clicks in people's head and they're like oh right that's why it's important yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense yeah no 100 i mean it, 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 it's a pretty solid kind of definition the only thing you could maybe um i wouldn't argue this for a client because they don't <laughs> what you said is perfectly great for that thing the addition of the where it stays on the target muscle you could have an active range that goes to a position where the target muscle is no longer the one that gets biased as much because it's really lost its leverage, its internal moment arm. And another guy is in a more advantageous position. So maybe moving from that active range or going through the full active range offloads that muscle at a certain point to another guy, but still within your active range, but it's no longer on the glute as much as it's now a bit more on the hamstring or whatever. But, you know, that'd be a super fucking technical pissy bit what you've said is bang on for communicating with a client and also the important part because you also were talking about body comp type goals maybe i don't want to go through my full active range anyway because what you just said was when do i lose it from the target and maybe i want to stay in that range i've got a bigger range but i lose connection beyond there for who knows what reason all right <laughs> well let's stay where you feel connected on it for a little bit and, and see do, if we do that rather than the opposite do the results improve and if they do, then you were right. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the bit that matters.
Yeah, exactly. No, I, I like that little addition. And you mentioned research and we've spoken briefly about a few potential problems with research during this podcast. What would you say are the sort of main things that we need to be aware of or take into consideration when we're looking at research into resistance training for hypertrophy? Yeah, almost all of it. Um, and I, by the way, I used to read loads of it and was, that's what I used to kind of do. And then the more I've learned, the more I go, all right, look, if we start with the basic premise of science, which is to control all of the variables, but one, you vary that variable and you see, does it lead to any outcome change? Right. That's that's the gold standard ideal of science that basically no experiments outside like chemistry and stuff like really get toward. But that would be the the idea. This is a complex subject, much like I don't know, psychology would be. You have to be wary with um, drawing hard conclusions from um, topics and subjects where there is a metric fuck ton of variability in the thing that is almost inescapable. Right. It is almost inescapable. That doesn't mean you can't. Uh, tentatively go, that's interesting. I wonder what that starts to tell us. But, you know, the first bit is going, throw out the idea that any of the reason, not any of the research, but that research is going to tell you something specific about the person in front of you. It yeah. doesn't tell you anything about the person in front of you. The person tells you about the person in front of you, not, well, we found in a meta-analysis, uh, <laughs> right? That doesn't tell us, well, was this person, even if the person was in the meta-analysis, it doesn't tell me it doesn't tell me anything kind of about them because a meta-analysis is studies of studies, right? So, well, in that particular study, Liz here responded really well to this intervention, whereas this other person got crap results from it. Like one of the first things you find in research, it's usually done on a really small number of people because there's not a huge amount of funding for, we want to study how well lifting gets you jacked because cancer exists and I'd rather our research went there than, than on this other stuff. And so, all right, we've got 10 to 20 people type thing uh, in there doing a particular intervention, but it, it has to be standardized by something. And generally it's almost always externally standardized. The bar touches the chest, they get to a certain kind of thing. And then it's just presumed that internally, that means the same thing for all of those people, even though it doesn't. And even if you standardize the tempo, if I've got someone who's six foot seven and they squat down, they're often traveling a lot further than someone who's quite short. So if I gave them three seconds to descend over, did they move at the same speed? No. Right, because they covered a different distance in the same period of time. And for anyone who's vaguely remembered Newton, they have a, a famous equation called force is equal to mass times acceleration, F equals MA. You're being exposed to forces. The mass is the five kilo dumbbell, is the 10 kilo dumbbell, is the weight of you, it's whatever. Force, though, is equal to mass times acceleration. Well, if I change the speed, I change the acceleration, I change the force, right? And so that fundamentally is changing everything as well. And yet we know no, the standardized tempo because we have to standardize something, right? So that goes to it. And then you get this idea of, well, tempo doesn't matter in the research. And that seems to be true to the things that are studied for some of the outcomes that they get. It doesn't matter that much. But no one buys it at the nth degree. Because again, if I go, all right, I'm going to get you to lie on the ground. And I'm going to place 10 kilos on your stomach and you'll be fine with it. And now I'm going to stand above you and I'm going to drop 10 kilos onto your stomach. Is it the same experience? No, because the acceleration of that mass means the force it hit you with had gathered a crap load of momentum and you had to stop that momentum with your stomach. And that's painful, right? Because the forces are much higher. So no one thinks that the forces are the same when you move at different speeds because it's fundamental physics, it's fundamental mechanics. And yet none of that's really accounted for. It's all treated as though none of that shit kind of matters, which if we follow a similar idea, 
let's say we're looking at research where they're using um, machines. So we've got a leg extension. Actually, let's use a recent one. That there's a lot of talk currently that more muscle growth happens at long muscle lengths than at short muscle lengths. And the reasoning behind it is related to this thing we call titan, um, which is super interesting. Chris Beardsley has uh, loads of good stuff on that for those who might be interested in some of this stuff. Um, Chris Beardsley also does a mentorship that is well worth doing. I've done it a couple of times. He's a great dude, really smart, insightful guy. I get the arguments for it, and I understand where they're coming from. And I think they're likely right. However... The study that looked at a prone leg curl, laying leg curl versus a seated leg curl found that the seated leg curl grew more than the prone leg curl. And that therefore the reason must be that the seated leg curl was at a longer muscle length, which is true. It is the hamstrings cross, well, three of the four hamstrings cross the hip as well as the knee. So you change their length. The problem is that there's no accounting for the variability in the machine, right? So just because I've got 30 kilos on a weight stack on a machine does not mean I've got 30 kilos hitting my leg. And it doesn't mean it stays at 30 kilos as I go through the range. 30 kilos could give me 60 kilos at my leg at one point and 40 kilos at the other point. It could give me 60 and 60. It could give me 30 and 30. It could give me 5 and 12, right? Machines go through a crap load of engineering. That means the weight stack is only one part of what I end up dealing with. So if, and there's no account for, well, which leg extension or which leg curl seated or prone or whatever, like, is that the same for the Cybex ones as the hammer strength ones as the Arsenal ones? I don't know. And how well do they suit the person as they happen to kind of be in there? Don't know, right? So if I had one where the seated leg curl gave me a crap load more resistance through the whole thing, and the prone leg curl gave me a decent amount of resistance at one point and then almost none at another, and then I conclude that the reason that the one group more grew more than the other was because long muscle length, well, I didn't even account for the other stuff. So how do I remove that from the variables equation? You can't because you haven't. And so you, you start seeing some of these uh, types of issues. So whether it's issues related to the assumption of the anatomy of the individual, the assumption that the ranges they went through were all kind of the same, the assumption that the, the physics of the exercises, which means the forces of the exercise were all the same, because no one thinks that the force doesn't matter. No one thinks that oh, if you use 10 kilos versus 100 kilos, that's the same. Like no one makes that argument. Well, if that's true, then all of the fundamental ideas of forces and physics have to also be true, which they are because they're fundamental, right? So you've got those things um, at play within there. Uh, and then, and I think this is a huge one, is that most of the research that's done on this this in this field is done on 20-year-olds. That, you know, because they're people at university and people at university, when they're doing studies on this type of thing, generally recruit like half their mates or people in the year uh, and stuff to kind of take part in it because... Fair enough. Like, I, I get that. But, you know, at 20, I could set myself on fire, drink a pint of vodka, sprint into a wall, pick up syphilis and still go to the gym the next day and probably have a perfectly fine session. I'm 34 now. That's not <laughs> that's not how that goes. And most of your clients, if you're a trainer, aren't 20 year olds because 20 year olds are poor. And so they don't hire personal trainers that much. I'm not saying some people don't have that audience. And there's a, a variety of different things that can kind of go on. And it's important to know how to work with them too, right? But the vast majority of personal trainers, in particular in-person ones, clients are going to be 30 plus, 40, 50, with different things going on, with more injuries, with more stuff that doesn't look like a 20-year-old, that doesn't respond like a 20-year-old. And so... None of the research ever helps you in the situation that it's supposed to help you, which is in the client session when you're stood in front of them and they're saying X. Because what do you do with that information? Well, the research says you shouldn't be. <laughs> okay, good luck with that. Like, 
it's fine and it has its place and we can learn from it and it gives us broad ideas, but it gives you nothing more than broad ideas. So all of it has to be taken with a giant pinch of salt. And fundamentally, I found myself as I've learned more and more and I've worked with more and more people, I care way less about what exercise research says than I did say five years ago. And my results yeah. are better with people and the client experiences are better with people. So I'm kind of like, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I've also found myself placing way less emphasis on research than I did on the path in the past. And I think that a lot of people use research to just support their own biases. Like they, <laughs> they have a belief yeah. and they will find a research paper to support that belief and yeah. make it sound legit on social media. And it's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it comes back to like, are you, do you, do you know, do you want to know the truth about something? And if you want to know the truth, then you should have no qualms with picking apart the research because like, I don't want to believe bollocks. If you can genuinely show me that I'm wrong with something, I'm all in. But you don't get to genuinely show me I'm wrong about something by going, well, this paper on eight dudes or even this meta-analysis and stuff. I'm like, you didn't control half the variables in any of them. So how conclusive is your research? It ain't. It's not that um, it's not that thorough, really, which is a shame to say, but it, it's the case. And then you add in the human bias element to that thing and the fact that people want to sound smart or whatever. And you're just left with this bit of going like, is this about you sounding smart or is it about you helping the person in front of you who's paying you money? Because it should be the latter. I feel strongly that it should be the latter. And yeah, research just doesn't fucking help you with that, really. Yeah, I certainly think it, it has its place and it can be used as sort of guidelines, especially mm -hmm. when there's, say there's lots of different pieces of research on the same topic. Like, of course you can use that as a guideline, but I just think it's it's used incorrectly far too often. Um, and on that note as well, what mistakes do you commonly see fitness professionals making when it comes to programming? <laughs> well, I guess we're back at this load. Uh, so well, one of the first things sometimes is there's no hard right and wrong answer in programming, right? Like, does it lead to the goal that the client has in mind without giving them, let's call it unnecessary issues, because maybe their goal involves possible issues, whatever way you want to dress this thing up. Like if you've got someone who wants to play elite rugby, I can't program anything <laughs> where they're not going to get injuries. Sometimes you're playing rugby, dude. Like that, that's kind of going to happen. If they want to be elite sports people of any kind, maybe inevitably you can't guarantee that they won't have some issues, but you know, you don't want to be adding to them and they don't want to be unnecessary. And you can have an argument about what does unnecessary mean in that, but let's make a very broad definition of it and fucking move on from that particular thing. So, you know, Within the realm of, did it move them towards their goal? And if it did, then it was right, I think is one of the first things to kind of take in there. And then going, there's there's no hard and fast, this is the definite best split that someone has to, but they train four times a week, it has to be upper, lower, upper, lower, right? Or three times a week has to be whole body or five times a week has to be, well, it's got to be push-pull legs followed by an upper, lower, or it's got to be push-pull leg. And then we've got to have a density day because JP does that or whatever it kind of needs to be. They all can work. Obviously, they can, all can work. And a lot of it is, well, what's your client responding well to? What do they like? What have they previously kind of done, et cetera, et cetera. But, the, you know, you, so you can have all those conversations. But I think those conversations, to some degree, are less interesting because outside of an individualized thing, there's, there's less specifics we can, I think, definitely give. There's still broad ideas. I do still think for most people, it's worth training a muscle group at least twice a week. I do think that. I have a bias towards that. 
And the research does seem to suggest that. But again, we have to take that very cautiously. That doesn't mean for everyone it is. Dorian Yates only used to like to train something like every nine days or some shit, right? So you're like, wow, he could have been way more jacked if he'd done it twice a week. I'm like, are you really sure? <laughs> right? So who knows? Who knows what this client is kind of in front of me. But the biggest thing for programming is that everything starts with, we could call like the fundamental unit that we have as a, a trainer or trainee is a rep, right? A rep of something. Right. Whether even if it's an isometric rep, it's still a rep of you doing something against some load, right? Or some force meeting your anatomy. We're back at biomechanics doing some stuff. And if there again, if there's no appreciation for what the forces are and what's kind of going on within there, and then how those things are standardized and used for an individual, how do you know what to build your house on top of? You know, you're kind of building it on sand, as it were, to use that old analogy. Um, and so I think that bit of going. An understanding of, all right, well, this exercise has a large amount of force requirement here, and maybe this one has a bit more here, and this one involves the secondary joints and muscles a little bit more. So if I use that one, maybe I need a bit less in the tricep because of this thing. But actually, this exercise doesn't actually really involve much tricep, even though it's chesty. So I might need a bit more tricep volume because I didn't use the bench press or the dumbbell press thing that I was getting a bit more tricep out of. But I used this cuffed variation type thing, right? Okay, maybe I've got a bit less going on there. So until you've got that sort of understanding of some of those bits, I don't know how we start to look at the program too much and go, what have we got going on within here? Like, I still like kind of going, all right, let's say we're training a muscle group two, maybe three times a week, sometimes just one, depends on the client's goal. Like it's not common for me, for some of my female clients, for example, you know, who generally come with, I want to grow my ass to astronomical proportions and uh, I, less of me for the rest of it, right? Well, we might just do upper body once a week and they're not really trying to grow it that much. We're not chasing all that much. We're just sort of holding it where it is. And there's no such thing as too much glute volume, right? Or can't some, relate to that all. Can't relate to that. <laughs> that kind of thing of going like, all right, how do we start to incorporate that training frequency without overdoing it, without allowing some recovery? What are then the differences between, let's say I do a hip thrust. Well, okay, first off, how do I perform it is obviously going to matter. But I'm doing it in a, in a bent knee position as I get to full hip extension. One of the interesting things about bent knee full hip extension is your hamstrings get piss weak. Right. They start to get this thing we call active insufficiency, which is just a fancy way of saying they get piss weak. And so they're not that useful at contracting in that position versus if your leg was straight as you drove into hip extension. So cool. Maybe doing that takes out a bit more of the hamstring uh, addition from there. And adductor magnus has this big hip extension moment when we get into hip flexion. But we're not getting into crazy amounts of hip flexion. So maybe we can take him out. So this actually becomes quite a decent glute challenge, but mainly in a shortish position for those particular things. So I'll just go, OK, we've got that in our head. And we know or seem to know, I should be cautious, that more muscle damage is occurring at longer muscle lengths than at shorter ones and with proximity to failure. So maybe we could train the hip thrust with more frequency uh, than we could train something like the squat. And then there's other reasons for that kind of as well within there, all the leg press. So you're kind of parking that and going, all right, that's kind of there. Then if I do this leg press, well, first off, how do I perform the leg press so that this person gets more glute if that's what they're interested in doing? And then I'm at a longer muscle length, but their glutes actually lose some internal um, ability, not internal, well, they do lose internal ability, but they're, they're losing their leverage as you get deeper and deeper into hip flexion. They actually have their best moment arm, their best leverage at full hip extension. So your body has a tendency to want to recruit muscles with good leverage because that's more efficient. 
the greater the leverage, the less force the muscle has to produce. So if it was doing the opposite, it would be a kind of dumb evolutionary strategy. You're like, let's use the guy who's most advantageous. That seems like a better plan. So cool. So we might go, all right, well, if we're getting to there, maybe we do, but then maybe I'm getting more of the adductors as they go in this. But I could still get a bit more glute by playing around with, with some of that stuff. And is that the same for every single person on that leg press? What leg press does my client have? Well, unless I've got some footage of them in the gym and I've got them to go around the gym and take pictures of the kit they've got, how the hell do I know? And even then, if I have that, if I don't ask Danny, how did that feel for you when you did that thing? Where did you get it? I'm still making a bunch of assumptions that I could just ask you questions about and be like, okay, cool, need to note that. So she gets that one in that bit. Okay, and then we've got, a let's maybe, okay, we've so we've got a longer position. We've got kind of a bit of a shorter position. Still need to perform them well. Have I got a mid-range kind of thing? Could I put something like a 45-degree hip extension thing in for that particular thing? And that's just the hip extension performance of the glutes. Have I got abduction that these guys are, are doing within there? Am I doing it in different degrees uh, of hip flexion as I go through abduction, which seems to work for them? How do I, like, you've got so much scope to, to play uh, and to see what works for the client. And I think that, yeah, maybe this is my takeaway from this. The the problem with thinking that we're going to have the, the the solution to all the programming things without, again, checking in with the client and going, is this working for you, right? And your time constraints and your preferences. And you seem to like volume. This person seems to like intensity. Or actually, is that just because they've just spent a year doing high intensity stuff where everything is drop setted or everything is a top set and a back off set, right? And they haven't done volume for a while. Or have they come doing... Now, Mike Israel, high volume shit for ages. And let's see what they respond to and what they like and what kind of works for them. If you work with people for a long time, you've got ages to play. Is it worth, you know, six weeks, 12 weeks to just find out? Maybe certain body parts respond really well to the intensity stuff and others respond a bit more to volumey kind of things. Maybe because of your joint issues, you need to not go so intensely because actually as you push the fatigue, shit starts to feel a bit creaky and not so great. But because you can't push quite so close to failure, maybe you need a bit more volume to offset that thing within there. Maybe, you know, Jimbo, who I work with, has, in his words, old man knees because he's six foot seven and used to play a crap load of basketball and used to bodybuild. So his knees are dust, right? So for him to do a bunch of legwork, he tends to stay further away from failure, but drive a bit more volume on things to sort of offset that thing and make sure that it kind of feels okay. And so, again, we're back at the it being individualized, checking with the client, understanding what's going on in stuff so that we can make informed decisions. And even, I think, last bit on this, because I'm then waffling way too much, uh, is, is sort of including the client sometimes in the decision-making process of going, look, this is what this involves and this involves and this involves. We could do one of a couple of these things from here, as far as I'm thinking and what I'm thinking about. And here's my thoughts. What do you think? Right. Like I've, I've constrained the choice a little bit and I've outlined it, but Danny knows way more about her life and what's going on around it and her little kind of preferences and everything else. I have a thing in my spreadsheets where we just we uh, rank the exercises in terms of how much you like, love, met or hate them. Right. And how much you connect with them. One to five. And so over time, I'm just looking for exercises that the people like or love and have a four or five connection rating. And by connection rating, I mean, I feel that in the muscle, not in like my joint or something kind of else. And, you know, we're back for that. Yeah, okay. Sweet. These are Danny's lists of exercises that we know work a treat. We play around with them kind of over time. Yada, yada, yada. And okay, is it working? Yeah, cool. Then great. Yeah, I love that. I think there are uh, too many coaches that are wrapped up in trying to make things as optimal as possible that they just don't even consider the client's preferences when in reality 
when it comes to making progress, especially over the long term, that's probably one of the most important things. Could Alongside, you? obviously, what's effective, but like it's not going to be effective anyway if the client doesn't do it. <laughs> no, exactly. exactly. And I, I think they're also they're probably not as unrelated sometimes as as that almost gets presented. Like I don't know many people who you know, uh, getting into training to the point that they've they've bothered, certainly if you're an online coach listening to this, people who hire online coaches generally, um, again, depends on who your audience is, so I, I don't mean this hard, but generally are reasonably committed to doing some stuff because in person, you'll have clients who never change for 10 years visually, right? But that's fine. I call those clients, I had plenty of them, right? Like I had, when I stopped doing in-person PT because I, I moved away from London, um, and moved back towards my hometown. But, you know, my, the only clients I had still in person were clients I'd had for the best part of a decade. And that was mainly from a sense of loyalty because, you know, from a financial perspective, they made less sense to me and took up more time than growing my online stuff and the PT project. But, you know, I'd, I'd been there for fucking weddings and I'd seen births of kids and, you know, they're friends that I go and, and do stuff with and you care about them. But, you know, they're also, for the most part at that point, you know, 40s, 50s, kicking into the 60s for some of those people by the time you get to the 60s most of these people are trying to die slowly <laughs> right you could call that live longer but I, I think it's funny when you say die slowly um so they've, they've got this thing that like Jono was one of my favorite clients you know he was with me for for 10 years smokes a bit drinks too much you know big job at one of the um big four accountancy firms senior partner um great guy but you know he hadn't looked different in like eight years like when he first started, we dropped a couple of stone. He got to a happier, healthier kind of point. That was the the initial aim. You know, not much changed over that kind of period of time, which was fine because he was happy. That was his goal. He didn't need to push any harder for anything kind of within there. And actually at that age, that's that's kind of great. I'm now can't remember how we got onto this. <laughs> I got onto this particular tangent. How did I get onto that tangent? We were talking about how it's a, it's really important to consider the individual's preferences when it comes to success and them achieving their goals. And then you were just talking about some of your clients and how preference is really important and people are trying to die slowly sort of thing. I have no idea how I got to Jono in that case from that particular line of thinking. But yeah, yeah. so look, whether you're working... <laughs> I'm trying to find a way of segueing back that made it sound like that wrapped together. I think what you were trying to get at is the fact that these people, especially who are a bit older and are trying to quote unquote die slowly, oh. are trying to improve their quality of life and therefore enjoyment is super important. Optimize. I think that's where we, we'd kind of uh, come with, within some of those things. Of, there's nothing wrong with trying to optimize stuff, but actually Cal said this really well on something. I can't remember what he was talking on, but he said optimal is relative to the individual. And it's bang on, right? And because whether you're dealing with, like Cal does, high-level bodybuilders who are interested in optimal, he still thinks it's relative to the individual. And, you know, just because the research says X doesn't mean your client experiences the same thing when they do that, even if they're a jacked giant human who wants to go to the Olympia. Like, the Olympia guys and girls don't all do the exact same exercises. They vary a bit. And you know, some of that will be I prefer this. That's where I was going. Right. Some of these will prefer it because they also connect with it. Preference and the overlap with what is optimal for, <laughs> for them within there. I've been like, it's a rare person who um, who cares about their physique and wants to kind of develop it. And online people can doing a bit more than in person. That's where I was going with that thing. Of, of um, disliking exercises that they connect really well with. That doesn't happen very often. 
it's very, I don't think I've ever seen anyone in any of my spreadsheet give a five on their connection rating and then say meh or hate the exercise. Anything with a five is I like or love it, right? Yeah, it feels great. That's exactly where I want that to, to kind of thing go on. So whether you're working with the bodybuilder person, because that's the most persuasive thing, as um, you know, you kind of said with the M10 thing, the light load RDL, you said you're like, how the hell did I get that experience from such a light load? That was super persuasive for Danny at that point in her life when she was like, I'm trying to grow my ass and hamstrings, right? <laughs> that was, yeah, the experience became this overlap of, oh, maybe that is starting to be optimal. And then if I load this and get stronger at with that connection, that's going to be super effective. So whether we're working with her at that point and those goals, or we're working with Jono and his desire to die slowly and just not annoy his fucking joints with in various ways, you know, we've got the capacity to work with, with, with any of those uh, people and that preference is an important part of um, making progress. But I don't think it's unrelated to how effective the exercise is. I think for a lot of people, preference is related to how effective they find the exercise so if you completely disregard it you're disregarding the client's experience of the rep of the set of the thing and you can't do that over time and um and have the client really think that you're listening to them because you're probably not yeah i agree with all of that i'm conscious of time but i want to wrap up with sort of one more question paul so i'll link two together why might we consider using resistance bands on exercises such as the leg press or hack? And should we always be using them? <laughs> obviously, yes, regardless. Uh, no, well, so obviously the answer to that part is no. So why should we use a resistance band if we're going to use a resistance band on a leg press or a hack squat? So the, the gist of the idea is that you're not equally strong through a part of a movement, right? So at different parts in a range, you have different strength. And so the top of the squat, the top of the leg press, the top of the hack squat, you are substantially stronger than you are at the bottom. And kind of everyone knows that, right? Because that's why we see memes with people being mocked for their quarter squats, right? Where they're doing this tiny ass knee bend with loads of plates on there. And everyone's like, that's not squatting, right? Um, or you might be able to walk out and just hold a heavy stuff. In fact, there used to be an idea. Eh, I don't think it's been given some love in a few years called potentiation, where you would do before your heavy stuff, you do a super maximal top of the squat type hold. You might do a small knee bend and you'd hold 20, 30% more than you'd actually go and do your actual lift for. And then you do that. And it seems to have a positive effect um, on how much you could lift. Cool idea. Um, so Obvious, and you know, you can test these things for yourself of just being like, well, how much can I do here? How much can I do that? Be very cautious and safe and sensible when you do that. I'm suddenly very wary of, of just giving that recommendation. Actually, I take it back. Don't test this. Take my word for it <laughs> at, this, at this particular uh, at this particular point. But we're stronger at the top than we are at the bottom. And so the question then is, if we've got a certain amount of load on the leg press or the hack squat that we're dealing with, if that's a, an appropriate load at, say, the bottom of the leg press, let's just stick on the leg press now for the hell of it it's not going to challenge me effectively at the top of the leg press, right? I can deal with more load up there. Well, when we use something like a band, we have this variability in resistance. As the band stretches, depending on where we attach it, it's either going to give us more resistance or it's going to take some of the resistance off as it comes down. So if you banded it from the top, as the load slides down the leg press, it's taking some of the load off. And if you band it from the bottom, it's adding some load as you drive it upwards. Now, the, the question then becomes, well, how much should it add or take away? 
And this is kind of the, the most important part of this because the idea itself is a pretty reasonable one um, and, and makes a lot of sense for those things. But the general gist you see in the industry is people just chuck a big green band on everything, right? Because maybe that's the only thing their gym has. And apparently the big green band is the solution to all of life's concerns. And it's <laughs> the problem is it's kind of like going, all right, well, depending on how far it stretches, maybe it's only adding 10, 20 kilos or taking off 10, 20 kilos for the most part. Well, if you've got six plates per side, or you've got 300 kilos, or you've got something in those kind of realms. Now, the amount you're lifting on a leg press or a hack squat is related to the slope. So the steeper the slope, the more of the load that you're lifting. So if you're on like a 45 degree angle, and you're, most people's phones have a, a measure, so you can literally stick it on the thing and be like, huh, this is 36 degrees, right? And then if you, you can do a quick bit of equation, which we won't do now, you can figure out how much as a percent of the load you're lifting. It's related to the sine relationship. There you go, some trigonometry. But we anyway, that's getting nerdily tangential. Um, so let's say I've got 45 degrees. At 45 degrees, I'm dealing with 71% or just under of the load that we've got. If it's a 30 degree angle, I'm dealing with 50% of the load that we stuck on there. So if you stuck on, this is a fun way to shit on bodybuilders. I mean, it would, <laughs> I, you won't because you just sound like an ass. Uh, but it, it's always worth noting that how come I can lift so much more on this leg press than this one? A lot of the time, it's just the slope. And it's that you actually can't. It's just that the angle is giving you less of the load or more of the load as you're doing that particular thing. But, you know, if we've got a few hundred kilos on there, you could be 50% or more stronger at the top of the leg press or squat than you are at the bottom. You know, I tend to start out with people going, let's do 20, 30% change in banding. So, you know, if we had on there of the 300 with the slope, you're actually got 200 kilos. I don't know, I'm pulling numbers out of my ass at this point. But let's say we kind of did that. And I wanted a 20% difference to begin with. Well, then I go, okay, it was about 200 kilos. So 20, 40, I need 40 kilos of band change, roughly. And it has to be roughly, you don't need to be super anal with the thing. But do you have a sense of idea of like, well, how much does that band need to stretch? And what's kind of going on? Or I want a 30% change. All right, so we're going to attach it there. And it needs to go about that far. And well, how far is down that far? Well, we're going to be back at active range again and going, well, actually, Danny only gets to there, but this other person can get lower. So where we set the band up and how much range it goes through is going to be varied on that person. And then I still don't know how strong you are. So I still need to watch you do it and go, did that look like it was actually challenging for Danny everywhere? Or did that look like, oh, it's hard down the bottom and then ah, nice and easy at the top again? Because I'm trying to get this thing where it's harder the whole way, right? Maybe I, I get a bit of a respite at the very top, maybe. But I, I, what the point of the banding of it is to make it harder everywhere, right? And so you can only do that if you get the ratios right, which helps to have a rough idea of what you're dealing with. But they still then have to watch it and go, well, how was it? <laughs> and what do we see kind of going on within that particular thing? So the biggest issue with the banding stuff is that people have no appreciation for how much banding they put on. It's the same band for everything, regardless of strength, regardless of whatever. And then they talk about, you know, well, we're doing this to adjust the resistance profile, which is just a fancy way of saying, how much load is this exercise giving me at this point versus this point versus this point versus this point? And if you map that onto a graph, it makes a curvy shape or a straight shape or whatever line that gets drawn. That is your resistance profile. And so does that exercise give me a load in this point and then not this point? Is it even everywhere? Who knows? But that's the resistance profile. We've mentioned strength that you're stronger at one point than others. Your strength also changes through a range of motion. And we call that a strength profile, right? It's literally another graph that goes, well, you're weaker here, you're stronger there. And it varies person to person, but it tends to follow similar trends. 
with certain exercises with the band thing, all we're trying to do is make the resistance profile match a little bit more our strength potential, our strength profile, uh, as it were, within that. So that's the idea behind it. You could also, if you're dealing with someone who's first starting out and they're learning to sort of deal with these things, maybe for joint reasons and other stuff, I want to offload it a bit as it gets to the bottom of their leg press. Also, if I band it from the top, those bands are slowing it down as it comes down. So it's not accelerating so aggressively so that Margaret doesn't turn into fucking a dust cloud at the bottom of this leg press that we've stuck her on there. So you've got a bunch of things that you could do. Do you then have to do it? No. No, God, no. Like plenty of people have been getting jacked and stuff for ages without doing this particular thing. One of the big ones for me is also like, how much of a faff is it or is it not for you to ban this particular thing? Like the hack squat in the gym that I used to go to was a right ball ache to bother banding. And I like a banded hack squat and get on quite well with them. But I was like, my goals, I'm 34, nearly 35. My goals aren't to be as big and jacked as is humanly possible. Uh, you know, at this point, I have lots of other interests and lots of things. I like to look a certain way, but, you know, I, I try and kind of take it. I'm like, ah, it's going to take another five minutes to set that thing up. And I'm already tired. And then I have to untail. Ah, fuck it. Right. And then there might be another exercise where actually, do you know what? The difference I feel in that exercise from doing that is worth the couple of minutes setting that thing up. It shouldn't really take you longer than about two minutes to set most stuff up. Otherwise, you're probably taking too long with some of those things because there's an efficiency perspective with some of this stuff. Um, so, you know, do you have to band it? No, maybe there's a benefit. Maybe you want to play with something where, you know, it doesn't um, get slowed down on the acceleration as you get to the bottom position. Maybe I want to allow it to accelerate quickly and then to catch it. Because if I have to catch it, I have to produce more force to stop it suddenly than if it was going slowly into that position. And bigger forces, bigger challenge for my muscles to deal with in a longer muscle length. And apparently that leads to more hypertrophy. So maybe I want to do that. Now, I would say it's probably riskier joint-wise. One of my predictions for the next year or so is that we're going to see people saying, uh, I'm going to stop bothering with the short end of range as a motion. I'm going to train almost everything at the, the length and range. And that's going to lead to more muscle growth. And I suspect it probably will lead to a bit more muscle growth. But I also predict there's going to be way more people complaining that their joints hurt a lot, right? Because they don't know where the end of their range is. And they think fucking everywhere is, is going to be fine with that. And there's more muscle damage. And there's all those other kind of things. And so as with too much stuff, it swings and roundabouts enough. So even if there was a benefit to what I've just suggested, which there could be, that might not mean that it's right for everyone. But it's an option. I think biomechanics wrapping this up really it's just about having options in your tool bag that you can pull out and be like, we can play with that. Let's say, let's kind of see how that thing goes. So yeah. I don't know if that wraps that up. No, I thought you wrapped that up really nicely and gave a good few examples of why we might band a squat or a leg press in different ways there as well. And it's honestly been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Paul. I think it's been an excellent episode. For anyone who wants to find you and the work that you're doing with the PT project, where where can they find you? Instagram is the easiest place to find us. So just search Paul Standell uh, on Instagram or the PT project on Instagram or James Sutton on Instagram and you'll find me and Jimbo um, who run there. If you've got any questions, DM us, fire an email. You can find the emails on there as well. Paul at the personal trainer project.com. But it, it, most people just DM you rather than, I don't think, I say email sometimes at the end of this. I don't think anyone has ever sent me an email from a podcast. Everyone just sends DMs. So it's probably easiest to go for the DM one. 
Yeah, for anyone that lis- that is listening that wants to find Paul on social media, I will put his details in the description down below. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you as always. If you do have any questions, please feel free to reach out and I will see you in the next one. Oh, I have to stop recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>